0: If you have a Bible today, I'm going to go to Psalm 16, and uh, if you are watching this live or later, I just want to say Jesus loves you. He's real, and he, you know, I've discovered that you can't figure out if God's real through an intellectual argument. You can argue and you can have reasons why you can believe or objections. What about this? But they have a saying in Scotland, it's better felt than telt. And I encourage you, if you're watching this uh, online or later today, if you want to know that God is real, ask him. Call on the name of the Lord. I've never met anybody who genuinely cries out, God, if you are real, break into my life and show me That's really soon, sooner or later, usually sooner, God hasn't done it. So call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Good. Well, we're going to go to, I said Psalm 16 in a moment. We've been speaking for a few weeks about life in the spirit. Hmm. The spirit-filled life. How many of you want to live a spirit-filled life? I do. I think spirit-filled Christianity is the only game in town. I will sometimes hear people kind of present this as if, well, there are are Spirit-filled churches and then there are more Bible-based churches. And every time I hear that, I go, no. If you're a Bible-based church, you're a Spirit-filled church. If you you try to take the Holy Spirit out of the Bible, you don't have a Bible anymore. And, And I've been sharing that over the past few weeks, but Christianity is about belief it's about us coming to truths and saying, amen, we believe these truths, but it's more than simply this intellectual acquiescence, this intellectual agreement, yes, I believe this, believe this, and believe this. You know, you can, with your mind, believe the right things, but not be a Christian. It's very quiet here this morning. It's Episcopalian church. <laughs> Leah and I used to know a guy uh, in Scotland years ago, John Mackay. And this guy was a university lecturer. I think he lived in Edinburgh, or Glasgow, I forget now. And He, would, he was a teacher. He'd teach theology. He'd teach on the Bible. His speciality was the book of Deuteronomy. And he would, he'd been teaching the Bible for years, but it was all kind of intellectual to him. It was all knowledge. It was all Greek and Hebrew. And once I think in the early 1980s he went camping in the south of England with his family. It's a Brit thing. We go camping in the rain, mud everywhere, after one week you're so miserable you you appreciate your home. (laughs) And uh, He went camping in the south of England with his family but the, the normal campsite that they'd planned to go to, the one they went to every year, was full. So he was driving around looking for a place to camp, and he found this, this large, massive tent, like a circus tent and all these tents around. So went in and asked if they could camp, and they said, oh, yeah, it's free. You can camp here. Great. He didn't know he'd gone to this spirit-filled Christian convention. And every evening, there's about 5,000 people gathering under the big top, you know, and singing, and he stayed well away from those crazy Christians. Well away. And one evening, he, he'd run out of milk. It's a British thing. You put it in your tea. Um, he had no milk, so he, he went for a walk. Literally, in his dressing gown, he goes to the campsite store and buys some milk. And on the way back, he stayed well away from that big tent with the crazies in. But there was also a small tent for the, the children's ministry. You know, maybe like 500 kids in this thing. And as he's walking by the kids' tent, for some reason it's like he just got intrigued and stuck his head around the corner and like, what's going on here? And this this tent is full of four or five hundred kids. Somebody's teaching them. And this university professor with his dressing gown and a bottle of milk. And that person was teaching that night about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he gave this invitation and all these kids are running forward to be filled with the Spirit. And this guy, John, He didn't know why he's doing it. Something just pulled him. He started running forward as well. And he's standing there with all these little five year olds around him with his his milk. He's still got the milk. And then somebody prays, and suddenly he's on the floor speaking in tongues. And uh, eventually he makes it back to his tent. And his his wife says, Where have you been? Where's the milk? And he was about to explain the milks on the floor in the tent when he opened his mouth and, you know, he burst out speaking in tongues. And, uh, you know, it's it's amazing. This guy became a really amazing man of God, wrote many great books. But um, it always touched me. He'd tell the story of going back to his university after that summer in September. And, you know, the fall. And he, t- he taught the same class he taught every year on the book of Deuteronomy. Same class. He taught this for 20, 25 years. Same notes. But now he'd met the author. Now he was full of the Holy Spirit. And when he stood up to teach, you know, he's literally saying the same words he said again. As he's speaking, suddenly, like, people are being knocked on the floor under the power of God. Students are crying and repenting. And God is breaking out in the room. Come on, we need the Holy Spirit. Say that with me. We need the Holy Spirit. And I I challenge you just lovingly, if you're here in the room or even watching this later, if you've given your head to Jesus, that's not a bad thing. That's a starter, but it's not enough. You need to meet God. You need to have a relationship with God. If I came to you today and you told me you were married, and I'm like, great, Tell me about your husband or wife, and you got a book out and you read a million different facts, and I'd say, "Yeah, but what are they really like?" He said, "Well, I've never met them, but I know all these things about them." That's not a relationship. It's not a relationship. Some, sometimes I, I've heard younger people tell me, "I've got a relationship with somebody through my phone. I've never met them." <laughs> That's not a relationship. And God wants to have a relationship with you, and He wants to fill you with His Spirit. Amen? Hey, where I want to go today, briefly, I want to talk about the presence of the Lord. You know, last week we were talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I think the Holy Spirit fills us. He empowers us. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be witnesses unto me. God equips us. He gives us gifts. He works on our character. He does so many different things. But I I think there's a difference between the anointing and the presence. And I think so often in our circles, we mix those two terms up, and that's okay. God's not pouncing on us if we say the wrong word. But really, the anointing is God coming on you to do a job. In the Old Testament, they would I mean, they'd physically anoint somebody with oil for a purpose, for a job. They were anointed to be a priest, to be a prophet, to be a king, to build the temple. It was like God giving them a special ability to do a work of service for the kingdom of God. And I love the anointing. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've discovered this in my life, and if you think about it, you will as well. It's possible. For somebody to really flow in the anointing of God and not be close to God. It's true. The Bible says the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. We'll often see somebody who God has called and maybe at an earlier stage of their life they walk with him. They walked in great power and anointing. And at times their character, sin comes into their life. They're not living as they should. And yet they can still operate in that same anointing. That's what King Saul did. He wasn't walking with God, but he could still prophesy. He was still anointed. And the anointing is wonderful, but there's nothing like the presence of God. And I I just want to share a few thoughts with you about the presence of the Lord. I think the Lord wants us to know his presence. Amen. We need his grace to change and transform us, his gift. I, I love all of those things, but there's nothing like the presence of the Lord. Come on, let's read a few verses in Psalm 16. I can find it. Psalm 16, verse 5 says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Mm, Thank you, Jesus. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol or hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Come on, in your presence is fullness of joy. Come on, real real quick, let's just think. What does it mean, the presence of the Lord? Now, God God is everywhere. Do we agree? He's omnipresent. David literally says, if I make my bed in hell, there you are. If I climb Mount Everest, Jesus is there. Hi. (laughs) Where can I go? Where can I run from your presence? God is everywhere. But there's a difference between God being everywhere and God manifesting his presence in a place. Yeah. There's, You know, you can come into this building in the middle of the night whenever you want. I mean, God is everywhere. He'll be here. But he's here in a different way when we love him. There's something when he walks in the room. And we feel and we experience the presence of the Lord. And I think so often in Western Christianity, we've reduced Christianity to, it's like we feel Jesus died, rose again, and gave us a book. And said, you guys get on with it, and I'll come back in 2,000 years. And we have Father, Son, and holy Book. And I tell you, we do have the Word of God, amen, but we, we're also people of the presence. God wants us to know His presence. God wants us to feel His presence. And here's where I'm going real quick with this. I believe that in the days, weeks, months, or years to come, the Lord wants to teach the church to grow, I don't want to say grow in His presence, grow in our consciousness of His presence, to learn to host the presence of the Lord more and more. I, I think we're moving into a place in the church where we, the church has the message of the gospel, "Amen, but the church also has the presence of the King in our midst. And where the presence of the Lord is there, things change. When the presence of the Lord is there, we're no longer having an intellectual argument. God is in the room. I was sharing this on Friday in a uh, month, but the, once years ago, I was in, an, in a Hindu barbershop in India. A friend of mine's having his haircut. And it's like the last place on earth you'd ever think about the presence of God. I'm in this Hindu barber shop with Indian music playing on the thing. And uh, there was an idol on the wall. It wasn't like Hillsong. <laughs> and it's, you know, stinking hot. And it's like 110 degrees or whatever. And no air conditioning. This noisy fan that wasn't doing anything next to me. And... We go into this barber shop, and there's a couple of barbers there, and they didn't speak our language, we didn't speak their language, but we explained my friend, her cut, he sat down, and one of the barbers started chopping my friend's hair, and I'm sitting there next to this other barber who's reading a newspaper, and, um, you know, just just thinking through the day, not, not particularly being spiritual, and suddenly the Lord broke into my heart and said, Graham, I want to touch these two men. And I began having this internal discussion with the Lord, Lord, I don't speak their language, they don't speak my language, they don't speak any language I know. How do we communicate the gospel to these guys? And suddenly that verse came to me, I think it's uh, John 18, I want to say, where Jesus says, where two or more are gathered, the I am, say I am, in the midst, the I am is in the midst And again, in my mind, I'm going, but Lord, this is an Indian barbershop. That works for church, but it doesn't work in a barbershop. And I suddenly realized, yes, it does. And I I looked at my friend Chaz, his name was in the mirror, and said, let's start worshiping the Lord. And he's like, in a barbershop. I'm like, yeah, okay. So under our breath, we just began praising the Lord and lifting him up. Not, not singing some crazy song with the tambourine, just, just saying, "Thank you, Jesus. We acknowledge you in this place. You are Lord in this place. You were risen from the dead, and you are Lord. And you know what, guys, the, the presence of the Lord came into the barbershop. Yeah, it's hard to describe God's presence with words, isn't it? But you know it when it's there. There's a holiness, there's a peace there is a, I understand that's subjective, but there is a heaviness and a weightiness in the glory of God. It's like suddenly, it feels to me like time slows down when we're in the presence of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And basically, there's two of us, two of us guys in the barbershop. We're worshiping the Lord. Suddenly, these barbers started crying. Both of them, these Indian barbers, they started shedding tears. And then another guy walked in from the outside, then another, then another. It ended up with about seven guys all in the barbershop. Nobody said a word. And we're all experiencing Jesus for like about half an hour. And then my interpreter came to collect us. And when the interpreter walked in, he's like, whoa, God is in this place. And through the interpreter, we then led all of the seven guys to Jesus. They all gave their lives to Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I, I learned something that day. There's something powerful about the presence of the Lord that we need. And I believe the Lord wants to teach us, again, forgive me if this is easy for you. It wasn't for me. I struggled with this. I had to, I don't want to say get my head around it. I had to get my heart around it. Hmm? I'm a thinker. I, I'm a reader, a thinker. Talk to me about anything and I'll ask 25 questions. I, like, that's how God made me and that's good. You know, there was a time earlier in my Christian life where at times I'd really feel the presence of the Lord, and at times nothing, nada. Can anybody relate to that? And it would actually really annoy me. I'd like, why why is it at times, Lord, wow, this is so amazing, your presence here. And other times, I know by faith you're here. I don't feel a thing. Hmm. I once had a friend in uh, Connecticut who, uh, Tim Nalbinas, and he said, when he was a young Christian, he couldn't tell the difference between the presence of God and a coffee buzz. He thought Jesus lived in Starbucks. Jesus does not live in Starbucks. (laughs) He goes to Duncan. Do I get a witness? (laughs) I remember as a young Christian just just being like, Lord, what do you do to get in your presence? And of course, the more we try to do something, the more we strive, the more we strain, the more we're like, God, come, oh, Holy Spirit, the more we, I would try to get God's presence to come, and at times, I'd try to speak in tongues at 300 miles an hour, you know, just like, and I'm doing all of these things, you know, I'm doing the okie-koke, turning around on one leg, you know, doing this thing, that thing, and... Uh, I, I remember in the late 90s, God really began teaching me about his presence. And I just want to share a few simple keys. i tell you what was a real breakthrough for me. I'm not saying you need to do this. But the Lord told me to fast. And I remember fasting for about five days. And four and a half of them were completely miserable. I'm fasting and all, all I do for four days is sit there feeling sorry for myself. <sighs> this God... Why am I doing this? I'm so hungry. I dream of bread and peanut butter. and uh, you know, Anything looks good when you fast. Can I give you a secret? Salad looks good when you fast. There are guys going, no. That's of the devil. <laughs> Just take it by faith. Everything looks good. And after about four four days of like misery and self-pity, I can't explain what it was, but it's like suddenly I just broke through to this place in God's presence. And I, I had to learn that I, I want to choose my words carefully, I was about to say you've got to switch your head off. You don't have to switch your head off in the sense like God's against your brain or whatever, but you don't connect with God's presence with your brain, you do with your heart. And what I, what I actually learned is the more we, like a dog chasing its tail, the more we're like, God, I want to know your presence. Give me your presence, love, blah, 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 blah. The harder it is. Here's, here's, I'll give you a few simple keys to experiencing God's presence. Relax. Just relax. Come on, I want to try an experiment right now. Everybody, if you will, just put your hands out in front of you. Just be relaxed. Now close your eyes. Now, relax. Now, Lord, I thank you. You are in this place. You fill this place. And, Lord, I just pray for anybody like I was struggling to to know you, to feel you, to experience you. I pray your glory, your weightiness, your peace will be manifest in our life we thank you for it, Lord. Peace I give you. My peace give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Good. Now, how many of you feel the presence of the Lord there? One person. That's good now, (laughs) Only people on this side of the room. It's interesting. (laughs) Can I say, guys, what we've got to do is practice shutting ourselves down and stopping all of our, you know, it's actually faith. Faith is not about striving. Faith is about resting. Faith is about us leaning into the arms of Jesus and just acknowledging him. Not saying, God, would you come? But, Lord, I thank you you're already here. Thank you, your presence is in me. Your presence is around me. Your presence fills me. Your presence overflows me. Yeah. Where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. When one person gathers in his... We were gathering in his name a second ago. What I mean by that is we're actually acknowledging the reality of Jesus. Whenever we turn our affections, our thoughts, our focus to him, his presence begins to come. Come on, I just... I feel like I should apologize because I'm going to ramble here, but that's okay. I think what we need to learn to do is practice knowing the presence of the Lord. Practice knowing when he's there. I think for many of us, we're so busy, and at times, even in our Christianity, even in church, in this church, it's true in many churches, and it's true in this one, we'll wrap the presence of the Lord with so much music and things, those are good, they're not bad, but it's like we've only learned to know Him in a concert setting with lights and and the perfect setting, and God's not against that, but He doesn't need any of that stuff to be real. Come on, he, he's real everywhere, any place, any time. And I think he wants a people of his presence. Yeah. I believe before this gig is over, before Jesus returns, I believe we're going to see things like the church going into, into towns, into cities, and literally hosting the presence of the Lord. I mean, what would happen if you could get enough Christians to fill, fill a town and just worship? and change the atmosphere in a town. Thank you, Jesus. You know, it's a, they, they say it's illegal to pray in American high schools, is that right? Well, you know, whatever, publicly anyway. Do you know what, I, I think it, two or three students together can go into a class and just bring the presence of the Lord in, and change the atmosphere. I don't care what the state or federal laws say, yeah, you don't need to be at the front with a microphone to do that. We can shift the atmosphere. I, I think so many of us, you know, maybe you've got family members in the strife and fighting or whatever. Do you know, we can go into an environment and just push out all of that. All, we can displace all of the tension and strife and bitterness and forgiveness and bring the presence and the glory of God into a place. Graham Cook talks about working with a church in Dallas, and he said there was a season in the 1990s in Dallas when there was this there was this one family that no church wanted. People would pay this family to leave. <laughs> I'm joking, but they—it's like this family had so many issues that issues had issues. It's like any time nobody would ask them how they were doing in case they told them. You know, it's just strife and bitterness and unforgiveness and, you know, financial, finances just always in a mess. Drugs, you know, relationships falling apart. It's kind of like this large family and just everything wrong happened in that family. And this family joined this church that Graham Cook was working with. And he he began going to the Lord and saying, Lord, there's got to be an answer to this. There's got to be a key to breakthrough in this. And the Lord gave him a sneaky plan. <laughs> and the Lord, the Lord got him to gather a whole bunch of Christians. I think it was 100 Christians. And he, he challenged all the Christians, I want all of you to come to that family's home at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and everybody has to bring, I think it was $50. So what's $50 times 100? $5,000. $5,000. So they turned up with $5,000, suddenly paid off all of the bills, boom, went, bang. And then he crammed 100 people into this little house where this family lived. There were people in the basement, in the shower, in the pantry, whatever. And this guy, Graham, said at 9.15, we're all going to pray in tongues and worship for an hour. There's just bodies everywhere, the closets, you know, people standing in the bed, the patio, whatever, and then 9.15, it's like, one, two, three, go. For an hour, people just began worshiping in the Spirit. (laughs) I wish I had a video of that. Sounds like so much fun. He said, after about half an hour, something left that house, that... He didn't know what it was. He couldn't describe, but it's like something left. <laughs> something was broken over that house. And suddenly every member, every member, every child, every granny, everybody literally like got converted and filled with the Spirit. And it's like suddenly all the issues just whoop, out of the window. Now, did they have to learn and become disciples? Yeah, I'm not saying that, but there's, there's something about God's presence which changes things. Yeah. So it's like a postscript to the story as well. It's interesting, they'd say for months afterwards, literally nearly every day, people would be driving down the highway and they'd turn off the highway and come and ring the doorbell and knock at that house. And when the family said, yes, what can we do? The, the, the pe- somebody, a stranger would say, I don't even know why I'm here, but God is in your house. Many times the fire brigade would come and, you know, screeching down the road and say, we people have reported flames coming off the roof of your house. And they'd get there and, they you know, it'd be perfectly fine. <laughs> no, no flames, no. Come on, there's the fire of God in there. And I, I think there's something glorious when the presence of the Lord is present. When we say the presence of the Lord, we're talking about the Lord being present. Hallelujah. So, come on, I, I believe we've got a challenge before us, church. And I'm not critiquing anybody, but I think for most of us, for the average Christian, we have a few little moments. Maybe there's a moment in church where we really feel His presence. Maybe there's an odd time we're at home reading a Bible, worshiping, and we feel His presence. I believe the challenge is the Lord wants us to live in His presence all the time, to walk in His presence, to learn to host the, the glory of God on the inside of us. So I want to give you about five quick keys. How do we host the presence of God in our life? Number one, it, we've got to start with the blood of Jesus. Say the blood of Jesus. It was sin that, that thrust man, Adam and Eve, out of God's presence, and it's righteousness that brings us back into the presence of God. The biggest roadblock for any Christian experiencing God's presence is it's really two things. It's sin or the consciousness of sin. The Bible says the righteous are as bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. And, and what happens to all of us, whether we, we acknowledge it or not, is whenever we, sin comes into our life, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, comes and... <laughs> And and accuses us, and we begin to feel guilt and shame before God. And there's something, and usually it's even happening at at a kind of subconscious level on the inside of us. Whenever we get near the presence of God, there's a part of us so often that feels guilty or feels, I don't completely belong there. And it's righteousness that gives us access to the presence of the Lord. And I really think there's two problems we need to deal with. Number one, if there's sin in your life, repent. Turn to your neighbor and say, repent, you sinner. (laughs) Just checking. (laughs) Yeah. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) Come on, when there's sin in our lives, we need to repent, but Can I say, I I think a larger problem is most Christians I know have repented, but they haven't forgiven themselves. And Satan comes and accuses them about things that God, God doesn't even see. When you repent, God removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's a straight line. It's not a circle. It's infinity. He buries your sin in the sea of forgetfulness, the psalmist said. And when you've repented... Don't talk to God a second time about your sin. God's like, what what sin? What? What? I don't remember that. So often we remember our sins, and Satan does, and we sit there stewing in this shame and this unworthiness, and it's so vital that we've got to establish our hearts in righteousness. Righteousness gives you boldness before God. Hmm. I uh, was sharing this, forgive me those who came to Vermont, but I, I, I love living in America. I know I say that a lot, but I'm going to say it more, especially this year. Come on, I think we're really blessed living here in America. I was in France last week. I love France. I like being in France. I like going to France, and I like leaving France. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And for, for many years, when I, I used to live in France and I'd come over here to America to preach. And I was in this, I'd never do anything illegal, but every single time, literally, I don't say every, probably four out of five times when I would come to America, I, I you know, I didn't have a visa, but I'm a Brit and I can come and come for 90 days. But every time I come, I'd go through the same pantomime, the same circus. Every time I come, I'd get the immigration officer saying, "Why are you here in America?" And I'd go, "Well, I've come to preach in churches." And they'd go, "Uh huh." Are you being paid? And I'd go, "Well, I'm not really being paid, but I preach, and they support my missions work in France." And straight away, every, nearly every time, these immigration guys would would. A little warning, like well, you're coming to work, earn money, aren't you? And I will. I'm not earning money. I tell them exactly what I was doing. It wasn't illegal, but it wasn't. They didn't have a box for it. And it was. Can I be honest? It was horrible. Every time I came to America, I would be given the third degree by some immigration officer. Now they're doing their job, okay? Like I'm not blaming them for that. But it was really hot. I'd fly over, you know, seven hours, eight hours from France or Germany, and. All the time, I wasn't having a relaxing flight. I was thinking, I'm gonna arrive there and are they gonna let me in? And so often, I'd I'd spend 15, 20 minutes talking with this immigration officer, then he'd press a little invisible buzzer and they'd come and collect you and take you to the little room in the basement. It's not fun. It's not supposed to be fun, but it was not fun. And I'd have what they call the secondary interview. Which means they let you sit there for about two hours just sweating, you know, just, just, and then they, they'd come and, you know, again, that's their job to try to interrogate you and intimidate you and, um, here's the point, I don't know if you've ever been in a room like that with, you know, somebody like shouting questions, you end up confessing sins you've never even done. (laughs) I'd end up feeling guilty and I wasn't me. I'm a preacher, I'm just here to tell people about Jesus and it was... It was hard. Here's my point. It's so nice to arrive in America, slap down my blue passport and have somebody say, welcome home. Welcome home. And I look back at all the other people like, you know, sitting there for hours in the queues and I, I go, M- move aside. Global entry. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you know, welcome home. You belong here. Yeah? If somebody were to say to me, what are you doing in America? I'd probably smile and say, what are you doing in America? I'm a citizen. I belong. Well, were you born? That's none of your business. I've been born again here in a sense. And I tell you what, guys, you, you have every right to go into the presence of the Lord. When Esther wanted to come before the presence of the king, she knew in a way you couldn't come in unless you were invited. And and if you read the book of Esther, there's this situation where she's like, I I could have my head cut off today, but I want to go into the presence of the king. And if the king raises the scepter, the stick of the thing, I'm good. If he doesn't raise the scepter, I'm dead. And she comes in and the king raises his scepter and says, you can ask for anything up to half of my kingdom. Isaiah 54 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. In the courts of heaven, God has raised the scepter and said, you're righteous. Come before my throne. You can, I won't just give you half my kingdom. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I tell you, Satan hates the message of righteousness. Satan wants Christians to believe that God has forgiven us, but he's very disappointed. He sort of he tolerates you. I forgive you. But John, really, I guess you sort of just about scraped into heaven, maybe. No, God is delighted in you. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a righteous one. Right now in heaven, I know it's hard for us to understand, but there is a heavenly altar, and the blood of Jesus is as fresh and alive as the second Jesus died. And right now, before the throne of God, the blood of Jesus speaks over your life and mine. And it says righteous. It says holy. It says pure. It says they belong here. Now, our problem, let's go back to Massachusetts, is the blood is speaking better things than the blood of Abel in heaven. But here on the earth, I can remember, you know, maybe something I did or some You know, mean word I said yesterday or some way I failed God and I'm sitting here. What we need to do is here on the earth we need to say the same thing that the blood is saying in heaven. We need to stop contradicting on earth what the blood is saying in heaven. You say, Graham, how do you know what the blood is saying? Open your Bible and read it. Get those verses about the blood of they overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. And I, guys, I really believe this. One of the greatest keys to entering into the glory, the presence of God, is having a heart that is established in righteousness. And Satan will fight you for a little bit when you begin to do that. There are about 15 major Bible verses on the blood of Jesus. Learn them. Email me. I'll send you a list if you want. Get them. Pray them. Speak them out. There's a boldness that comes into your life, and Satan, Satan is not afraid of all of our spiritual warfare techniques and your scented o- anointment oil. S- Satan, God, We love shofars, but Satan is not afraid of a shofar. Satan is afraid of a man or woman who knows about the power of the blood of Jesus. And it's not the words, the blood. It's us knowing. Come on, I, I encourage you, get... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9. Ephesians 2, 13. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. Hebrews 10:19. Having boldness to come into the holiest place by the blood of the Lamb, by a new and living way. Get those scriptures. Leviticus 13. There's life in the blood. When we'll get those and pray those and say those and establish our heart in them, something changes, and it's suddenly the presence that we've got the pass key to the presence of God. It's the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. (laughs) Under the old covenant, the priest could come into the presence of God once a year with blood and with incense. He'd be allowed in once. They'd literally tie a rope around the priest's ankle in case he got struck dead by the presence of God. They'd put bells on him just to check, is he still alive? And he'd go under the curtain to the place where the glory dwelt. Hallelujah. When Jesus cried out in uh, John 19, verse 30, it is finished. The Bible says that curtain, it was thick, it was torn from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth, and there's now a, a new way, a new and living way open into the glory of God through the blood of Jesus. Come on. Would you say this with me? I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Come on, say that again. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. God calls me righteous. The blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. I have boldness and access into the, presence of the Lord. into the presence of the Lord. I tell you guys, if we'll do that every day. Hmm. About 20 years ago, the, uh, the Lord spoke to me about getting all those blood scriptures out, and I just begin praying them every day. And I've been doing that for a couple of months, and then w- once I was preaching for a couple of days down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I was in a charismatic Baptist church there in a movie theater. And I preached the second night, and at the time, Leah was back in France. She was pregnant with Sandy. How old is Sandy now? 19? Yeah. So this is like 19, not far off 20 years ago. And I think that night I'd mentioned that, that, you know, we were expecting a baby soon, and I wanted to make it home, you know, for the birth, all that kind of thing. And uh, I end my service, pray for a bunch of people. I'm just sitting on the front row in this movie theater, and this lady came to see me. And she said, Pastor Graham, I've got a prophecy for you. Now, I'll be honest, I don't normally let, I don't let any Tom, Dick, and Harry prophesy over me. But, you know, I was sort of caught off guard and didn't really think, and my defenses were down, and for whatever reason, I was like, okay, yeah, go, great, go for it. And this lady looked at me, and she went, I see death. Ooh, death, 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 death. And she began this prophecy. It was just full of King James English and death. Verily, death. Thus, death. Death thee, thou, death. Death, di, death, 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 death. Death, death. The death star was in there somewhere. But <laughs> and she's just, just going on and on and on. And I'm, I'm like, okay. And I, I couldn't even be bothered shutting her up. And then, just when she nearly got to the end, she said, Oh, I see a vision. Oh, ooh." ooh, ooh. She said, I see a picture of your wife and a baby, and somebody's pulling a black sheet over them. Death, 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 death. death, 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 death. And, and then she finished, thus says the Lord, and she began walking away. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd woken up by that. I reached out and grabbed a hold of the hem of her garment <laughs> and pulled her back. And I was about to give her a little lesson on, like, dumb prophecy, edification, exhortation, comfort, and death. Uh, And here's the point. I began speaking to her and suddenly every word out of my mouth was Bible verses I'd been confessing about the blood for months. And it's like every time I said the blood, it's like I I didn't do it, but it's like I slapped her. You know, the blood is (laughs) blood, blood, blood. (laughs) can Can I say that, guys? We need to know the power of the blood of Jesus. And you don't, you don't, when somebody is, let's not get weird or freaky, but somebody's speaking curses, which is literally what that woman was, a witch. Some churches have witches in them. Not all witches have a pointy hat and a broomstick and a black cat. (laughs) Though we know witches like cats. (laughs) Oh, moving along. Did I say that? (laughs) You never see a, a witch with a dog. I'm just saying... (laughs) I'm joking, am I? (laughs) You know, so I I just remember going back to this motel I'm staying in, Myrtle Beach, and I I had a flight, I had to get up at 5 a.m., and I'm going to bed about midnight, really need to sleep, and suddenly, just as I'm drifting off to sleep, this thought comes to me, why don't you call Leah in France and just check everything's okay? And I begin going, it's like midnight, so it's 6 a.m. in France. You'll be getting up. And, and I sort of reach out for the phone, and, I'm, and suddenly I realize what Satan was doing. You know, he's, he works through fear. And I kind of dragged myself out of bed and said, no, I'm not calling her. And I began the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Come on, nearly done here, guys. But the blood gives us access into the presence of God. What else? We need to learn to worship. The worship brings us into the presence. God inhabits the praises of his people, Psalm 22, verse 3. When we worship, the Lord walks into the midst of our worship. And I, I think we've all got to learn the difference between singing a song and worshiping. And it's possible at times, you know that we can just be doing, going through the motions. At times I'll be up there and I'm thinking chords and what I'm going to sing and the rhythm and all this. And at times I've got to say, all of that stuff's good. But Lord, worthy is your name. And I, I think one of the best ways of learning to worship is worshiping when nobody's around, when nobody's looking. Worship when you don't have music and lights and all those things and just learn to enter into his presence. I tell you, God loves it when we worship. He loves it when we we will bring a sacrifice of praise. Say sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is something that costs us something. You haven't given a sacrifice. It would be possible for somebody to put, you know, $10,000 in the offering today, but not have made a sacrifice. It might be possible for another person to put $10 in, and that to have been a really big sacrifice. Sacrifice doesn't depend on, we shouldn't measure somebody else's sacrifice. And I tell you, there's something in worship. No matter how, how excellent, whatever we do on the stage isn't the point. The Lord wants us to bring a sacrifice. Something that costs us something. Something that, you know, there's a difference between somebody who, who, you know, maybe sat there at home baking food for hours and brought it to feed, and somebody who just pressed some app and had somebody deliver it. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with that. My point is, God loves it when you bring Him a sacrifice of praise, something that costs you something. Can, can I challenge you, challenge myself here as well? How costly is worship? When Mary of Bethany came, she took literally a year's salary, and I'm sure she wasn't a rich woman a year's salary, and just, she didn't invest it. She didn't sow it into his ministry in a good stewardship way. She just smashed it at his feet, and the fragrance of that offering to fill the house. And I believe there's something about the presence of the Lord that when we sacrifice, there is a fragrance that is released Mm, Thank you, Jesus. Come on, let me give you one more key, and we'll talk about how we do this practically, but I think there's something about honor that God loves as well. Say honor. Would you do that? The Lord says, I will honor me. I will honor them, excuse me, who honor me. God is a God of honor. And I I think by and large, you know, in America, in Europe, in our our kind of societies, we don't talk a lot about honor anymore. Maybe in the military they do or things like that, but we're a very user society. We're a consumer society. And heaven is a place of honor. And I think if we want the presence of God in our lives, well, obviously we need to honor God. But actually we need to learn to honor each other as well. You know, to honor somebody doesn't mean you have to agree with them. To honor them doesn't mean you've got to think they're right about everything. When we honor somebody, we honor the image and the mark of God upon them. We're saying, this is your child, God. Now, do we agree? We don't don't always have to agree on everything. We need to learn to honor people for who they are without dishonoring them for who they are not. I say that again. We need to honor people for who or whose they are, for their identity, without feeling you know, there's a thing, about, I think social media makes people weird and brave. Hmm? There's a thing about social media where suddenly people do things on social media they'd never do in real life. They'd never walk up to somebody and speak to them in the way they would in some common thing. You know, it's, I mean, it's a sad thing, but we've seen in the body of Christ, like I've seen, we've seen a couple of really big ministries fall into sin in the last few months and see things and... Do you know one thing I'm sure of is we're not all called to give our opinions about every little thing. And it doesn't mean we agree with it. Sometimes we cry or we just pray for those who are involved in that. We don't all have to, you know, sometimes there's like a gossip thing that can get into Christians where we, ooh, let me tell you, we all got to give our 10 cents about something. Sometimes let's just be broken-hearted and pray. And it's actually possible to look at You know, I'm thinking of a particular ministry right now. Look and say, Lord, they've done so much good on the earth. There's so much genuine good been done with that. And, Lord, I believe you're going to deal with this sin and and you're going to deal with that, but I don't write the whole thing off. Come on, and I I think we should be a people. If we want to be a people of the presence, we need to be a people of honor. And I tell you, look around the room. Whoever you, you meet with, there are things you can honor about people. Whenever you honor somebody... The God of heaven loves it and smiles. And I think there's something about honor that that creates an atmosphere for the presence of the Lord. Come on, nearly done here. Let me tie these pieces together. How do we live in the presence? I think we've got to practice the presence. I think we should actually invite the Lord to come. I know He's everywhere. I know He's omnipresent. But there's a different thing when we're saying, Lord, would you come and fill my car today? Not with gas. Would you come and fill it with your presence, with your glory? Yeah. Lord, would you come and fill the office I work in? Would you fill our house? Yeah. You know, as you go home today, if there's strife in your house, you know, let's stop. We don't win every situation, every conflict with confrontation. You know, you can walk into your house and say, we're going to have peace and love and joy in this house. Lord, your presence is going to rule and reign in this. Lord, this house is a strife-free zone. Hallelujah. Lord, we refuse to tolerate tension and strife and stress in this place. We're going to bring your peace here. I believe even if you work in a secular workplace, you can come in. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And say, I have brought my kingdom with me. Hallelujah. And just release the glory of the Lord. I think we can bring people under the influence of God just by being there. And that is part of our call. We're called to carry the message of the king, amen, but also the presence of the king. Come on, last thought, and I'll finish with this. But so often what happens in revivals, if you look at revivals past, is you get a bunch of hungry people. Most revival starts with hungry people. The Welsh Revival that my family was touched with started by a guy guy called Evan Roberts. And he'd come before the Lord, like, Lord, bend the church to save the world. Reese Howell, intercessor, this group of people, they were hungry for God. And whenever you get hungry, God's presence begins to come. But catch, follow me, guys. Whenever the presence of the Lord comes, you look at every revival, this is true. When the presence of the Lord comes as well, revelation comes. We begin reading the same Bible, but through different eyes and seeing things that maybe another generation hadn't seen. And for a season, most revivals live in a place where the presence of the Lord is there. And God is showing them, again, there's nothing new. It's all here. But they're seeing things through new eyes. Hallelujah. Tell you what happens so often, though, is that that revival movement comes under attack and criticism from the outside. Whenever God does something that you've never seen, you've never understand, it's easy to start criticizing it. Well, I didn't do that in my day. And what often happens in a revival movement is we we build a camp around our new revelations, our beliefs, and we begin to lose the presence of the king. We've got kingdom principle without the presence and glory of the king. And usually 10, 20, 30 years later, that movement becomes becomes a fossil, becomes a relic of what it once was. It still has its truths that it will die for. But the glory and the sweetness and the presence of the Lord is left. And then God begins to move down the road, and they think it's Satan. So here's my encouragement. Let's hold on fast to the truths that we've received and love them and learn them and teach them. But we've got to have these bathed in the presence of the Lord. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If all we've got is intellectual truth from God's Word, we begin to spiritually shrivel and die. And we need the Holy Spirit to come on the written Word and breathe on it that it becomes the preceding Word. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every preceding, every rhema word, every God-breathed word. Good doctrine won't transform you. It's good doctrine where the the rain of the Spirit falls upon you and He he makes it real in your life. Hallelujah. Come on, would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank You. Thank You for Your goodness, for Your glory, for Your presence. Mm. Lord, we want to be a people of Your presence. We exalt You and we love You. Come on, would you just sing with me as we close? Worthy is your name, Jesus, and you deserve the praise. Worthy is your name, and worthy is your name, Jesus, and you deserve the praise. What is your name? Lord, we love you and bless you. Father, take us in deeper into your presence, into your glory, where the Shekinah dwells. Let us be a people full and overflowing with your spirit. a people walking in the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Bless you guys. Hey, we have some food and coffee downstairs. If you'd like some prayer. Our prayer team is going to be up here in a moment. Again, if anybody would like to volunteer to lead an hour or two on Friday night, even if that's just leading prayer, just come and see Tanya. I know that would be a help. And we love you guys. Have a wonderful week in Jesus' name. Amen.